Um, being in this environment, um, I've been thinking of Jesus. I, um, growing up, I didn't think much about him, not only because my parents um, weren't very spiritually active, but we, uh, we were culturally Jewish, and um, I don't think the word Jesus actually was ever mentioned in, in my home life. Um, it was only at school, and probably a Christmas carol. That was <laughs> that was it. But um, I've been contemplating him as he's been um, um, hovering over us here, and um, really been inspired by the magnitude and expansion of his heart. That in the moment in which he was being murdered, um, he had no hatred in his heart. That rather instead he said to God, or to the universe, or life, and to the people around him, um, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. And that, for me, is such a beautiful expression of our possibility, of living in a state of love that is so profound and deep that even when people in their ignorance are murdering us, there is no hatred in the heart at all. There is just love and forgiveness. Or I think of Joan of Arc, who um, was burnt for being a witch. And even that agony of flame and heat, she stood profoundly close to her own understanding of herself as an ordinary human being. And one with a vision, or one with a vision um, that inspired her to fight for freedom in France. Or I think of Harriet Tubman, that in the midst of so much um, prejudice and racism and hatred, that nevertheless inside of her heart was a vision of freedom that was never destroyed by the conditions around her. That in the midst of tremendous difficulties, that vision of freedom stayed with her. And to me, these beings exhibit for us our possibility because they, they were ordinary human beings like us. And yet, in their practice, as we're practicing now, called forth these qualities and opened to the depths of their being, to the beauty of their being. Um, in a way in which they were never then lost. They never got lost. They were there, deeply connected to the essence and the source of their life. The beginning of the Sutra of Mindfulness, the Buddha says, there is monks, and actually the word monks um, in the context of the sutras wasn't just 
um, from monks. The um, translation actually includes all people listening to um, the Buddha speak, so nuns as well and lay people, both men and women. So, um, so uh, that's what's meant by monks here. There is monks, this one way to the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and distress, for the disappearance of pain and sadness, for the gaining of the right path, for the realization of nirvana, that is to say, the four foundations of mindfulness. What are the four? Here, monks. A monk abides contemplating body as body, ardent, that means energetic, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world. He abides contemplating feelings as feelings. He abides contemplating mind as mind. He abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects, ardent, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world. In the course of this retreat, I wanted to actually systematically go through each foundation of mindfulness, and I wanted to start on the first one. Because the Buddha both had this um, deep connection to the source of his life. The Buddha was realized like Jesus Christ and, and many, many, many other beings. And he also laid out a very, very clear path, a map of the different practices or the different trainings that we can undertake in order to come and touch the source of our life. And he said mindfulness was critical, that mindfulness was a critical ingredient, as, 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 as um, I just read, that actually if we are mindful of just one aspect of the first foundation of mindfulness, any aspect of the first foundation of mindfulness. By really, really practicing mindfulness, we can come to touch this freedom, not just the little touches and little touches, but come to touch it in a deep enough way that it's not lost, no matter what the conditions are that we find ourselves in. We come to that deep, abiding, unlosable type of freedom. So, um, so then, what is mindfulness? We've both talked about it a lot. Just to recap, um, and uh, I found some quite interesting notes as I was going through my files, so um, I think I'll, I'll read them as well. But just to say that the primary aspect of mindfulness is remembering. Actually, the classic definition is not forgetting. And I'm, it seems so prosaic in a way, doesn't it? Just not forgetting. But of course, 
if Christ was on the cross and forgot what was happening in that moment, the course of history would have changed. And the same for all of um, for all realized beings that we cannot touch the essential nature of our being if we're forgetting. We cannot realize life and its sacred mystery if we are forgetting. Remembering, remembering, being present for the process is uh, non-negotiable. You can't barter it away with other things. So, not forgetting, another classic definition is non-superficiality. It is not only not forgetting, but actually penetrating your experience. So it's not like the mind just, you know, a breath and you're away again. But it's like staying with breath and coming deeper and deeper into breath or into whatever experience it is that you're having. Non-superficiality, the classic example um, given in the, um, the Subhimaga, which is the commentaries of the Buddha's text, is that mindfulness is like a pebble when you throw it in the water. It's not like a cork that bubbles on the surface. It's a pebble that goes deep to the bottom of the water. The penetrating aspect of your knowing into your experience so that you see all the qualities of the experience. So um, just to um, do a little aside again, because we've been talking a lot about concentration and mindfulness, and so just to tag it again, concentration, the, the, the manifestation of concentration is a quality of being absorbed into the experience. In that absorption, actually, in, in the full jhanas of absorption, you don't know the experience. You're fully absorbed into the experience. And it's only when you come out of the jhana, as you're coming out, that you know what the experience is. So, um, of course, we're not going fully into the, into the jhanas here, but the, um, the way to distinguish concentration from mindfulness is that mindfulness is the knowing of the details of the experience and concentration is coming more, becoming more absorbed into the experience without so much knowing. So um, let me just read, let me just read some of um, these qualities that probably some of you have experienced um, already. Um, it was by um, Bhikkhu Soma, who's um, done a lot of writing on the Buddha's teachings. So he has a list of different aspects of mindfulness. He says, Mindfulness is rational when associated with right understanding. It is discrimination, wisdom, intense knowledge, research, investigation, learning, pondering, skillfulness. It has a regulative function. In this connection, mindfulness is compared to the treasurer of a king who reminds the king of royal possessions in detail. The value of the recollection activity of mindfulness is in the awareness of the essentials of living a life of practice 
and the growing strength of purpose for realization. Mindfulness takes care of the mind and protects it. Mindfulness looks to the smooth working and movement of the mind and takes notice of the process, both skillful and not, that's taking place in consciousness. Mindfulness is selective and integrative, distinguishing good from bad and in cultivating the good and avoiding the bad. Like the work of a chief advisor to a king, mindfulness distinguishes the worthy from the unworthy. The integrative character of mindfulness is like the minister of projects, organizing and combining workers and executing tasks. Mindfulness organizes the activity of the mind necessary for the development of wholesome states. It combines various other qualities which compose those states and puts them to their appropriate tasks and keeps them there in proper working order. So for example, um, as we're sitting, we might notice that there's not an awful lot of energy in our mind, that's mindfulness, and so mindf mindfulness um, just sometimes by itself, without us having to do anything, calls up more energy into the mind. That is to say, when mindfulness gets strong, in the seeing, it, it by itself calls these particular qualities into being. So that it's said in the seven factors of enlightenment that actually all you need is mindfulness. That just mindfulness will call up when it sees the need for it, for investigation, for rapture, for calm, for equanimity, for concentration. Um, what was the last one that I forgot? Joy. Um, Mindfulness makes for the absence of confusion. It overcomes mental conflict and incapacity to judge. And um, I can't read my writing. Mindfulness produces lucidity of thought and sound judgment. Mindfulness, when accompanied by sustained energy, is mindfulness considered as a spiritual power and is the quality of earnestness which destroys the wavering of negligence. Negligence is the wandering of the mind in objects of sense pleasure. It is the absence of thoroughness and perseverance, the casting aside of doing what is right, the absence of practice and development. Earnestness is the opposite. It is non-neglect of mindfulness. Earnestness is the name for mindfulness that is always active, constantly at work, and has been explained by some as the application of mindfulness and clear comprehension to our whole experience. So, I won't think that's enough, but isn't that interesting? Because it just really shows the, the comprehensive nature of mindfulness and the profound work that it does when it's really strong. So, um, what, what we're doing is really cultivating this particular energy and quality of mind that when it's strong, it begins to exhibit these, um, these characteristics just by itself.
Eric yesterday talked so beautifully about concentration and about the incredible bliss and um, joy uh, that concentration brings. And um, I wanted to talk about the incredible happiness that mindfulness and wisdom brings. I think probably all of you, in a way, have felt for moments that touch of mindfulness when mindfulness comes into direct contact with your experience and and that sense of deep connection that happens, that sense of, of um, coming closer to the source of our life. Actually, the happiness of this connection as it continues to grow surpasses the happiness of concentration. It is the most profound happiness that is as deep as life itself. There, there is no finite place, there is no place where it's bounded, that just in one moment of mindfulness, it makes me cry, when it connects just with a sensation in our body, right now, just the mindfulness of connecting with pressure, and that pure connection can take us deeply to the source of our own life and to the source of our beauty, for want of a better word. We come to, we come to inhabit life in its fullness, and that's just in a moment of mindfulness. And those connections are never forgotten. They become the calling to keep on persevering so that more and more we come. And the more we, we make this earnest effort and perseverant application of effort to our experiences, the, the longer those moments of contact happen, of, of touching that source inside of ourselves, and more and more we reside in, in what this is called, it's called emptiness. And that's the Buddha's dry language. When he talks about emptiness, he says, we come to reside in emptiness. Emptiness means there's no clinging, there's no delusion, and there's no hatred. The positive side of that is, is that it's, it's kind of, I was trying to describe it, thinking about it, to describe it to you, and the only image I could come up with, which is really a, not such a great image, but it's being like a kid in a mother's stomach where you are getting where you you are getting fully nurtured you are you are receiving all the nutrients that you need and touching emptiness and some of you i know have experienced it it feels like you are touching the deepest source of nutrition or nutrients but not just of food but of all of life it is the the most terrific <laughs> 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 it is the most terrific connection. So, and we just, what happens is that we abide in those spaces more and more as we deepen in our practice. But here's to say a very important thing, because often what happens is that we might touch a particular experience, we might have a lovely sense of breath or a lovely meditation or a terrific retreat or um, uh, um, any kind of lovely opening experience 
and then we might experience profound difficulties. And sometimes it feels like all our practice is about going backwards. Or it might be that the, the moments that I've talked about haven't even happened in your formal practice. They've happened outside when you've danced or when you've been um, in a sunset or when you've been in a, 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 a touch with love um, that is, um, goes beyond just that touch. Um, and then it seems as though um, we're back in the ordinariness and the challenges of our life and that the difficulties that we encounter seem to be saying to us that we really can't do a spiritual practice or that we're not getting anywhere in our spiritual practice or that our spiritual practice is pointless or hopeless. But um, I don't know if any of you have read Jack Cornfield's new book, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. It's wonderful because he really gave eloquence to what actually happens, which is that our practice go, goes in a series of loops of openings and then profound difficulties, of openings and then profound difficulties, of openings and then profound difficulties. It's as though the openings created the space for the difficulties to surface. And Michelle McDonald, one of our teachers, uses a wonderful um, description. She says it's like putting dirty clothes in the laundry and you see all the, the scum come to the surface of the water. So that, um, so that this, um, this, app, this, um, This practice of mindfulness actually has to be held in the context of what's going on with us. And um, Eric and I already have talked quite a bit about that. This, um, in the question and answer um, session, for example, we said when there is really um, difficult, very difficult, overwhelming emotions coming up, then that is not the time to really um, continue to persevere in mindfulness, but often rather the time to back off and to switch to other practices. Because mindfulness is opening and deepening, it takes us to the source of things. And if we're being really challenged by difficult experiences or difficult emotions, then really we want to back off and strengthen our mind by doing other practices like concentration practice or loving-kindness practice or just relaxing and taking a break and resting and then coming back so that we strengthen the mind to be able to hold those difficult experiences with mindfulness. We come in and touch it and then back off. And um, I, I don't know, I, I, know, I mean, I know that um, 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 we've both, both had to back off, but my experience is actually quite similar to the experience Eric talked about in his Dharma talk um, when he was um, telling the story about Joseph Goldstein. I had a very profound opening early on in my practice, and then 
some uh, about two years after that, I had a very uh, like a lot of ease, and then it was like I couldn't meditate, and that happened not just for two years, but that happened for six years. For six years, I could hardly practice mindfulness, and it was awful. I just felt that there was something horribly wrong with me, and that I was such a failure. And I was at that time practicing with um, Joseph and Sharon, and um, they were and Upandita, and um, they were studying with Upandita, who's this wonderful Burmese teacher. And Upandita's great mantra was make more effort, make more effort. And I kept making more effort and kept making more effort until I was so dissociated, I couldn't even think a thought. I was like, I was so bad that when I got out of that three-month retreat, I crashed my car. <laughs> and that was like this wake-up call to me, and it was like, you better back off, girl. Now, they're so wonderful that there's so many of us who've gone through all these experiences and can say, hey, listen, it's really, it's really good news to back off that this process of mindfulness is a process that includes backing off when we feel confronted with really difficult emotions because that is not the time to keep on going deep into our experiences. Like, like a battle, when you're, and this is just what comes to me, we're, we're fighting a battle, there's two armies, and it seems like one is, you know, really much stronger and is advancing, and you see that, you, you, that you're weak, that you don't have a, a lot of strength. That's not the time to go into battle. It is the time to retreat. Retreating is good. And so, there are some occasions when going and sitting by the pond or reading a book, or I, I, I love murder mysteries, reading murder mysteries, and I have read murder mysteries on retreats. <laughs> it's been a profound practice. And, <laughs> and it's been a profound practice because it means letting go of getting somewhere. And that's the downside of talking about these blissful states, because it can awaken desire and this longing, and it can awaken an over-efforting to get to this place. But actually, the vision that we have has to be dropped also in each moment, so that we see where we are, and we meet ourselves where we are. Our lives call us to be present. Our lives call us to be present. In each moment, there is nothing that is more healing than our ability to be present with our experience, whatever our experience is, to, to be there in the most mundane experiences, the Buddha says in the first foundation of mindfulness. And he includes urinating, he includes um, um, washing, he, he includes stretching, and he includes putting on your robe, he includes bending, he includes walking, he includes every single aspect of experience that we have in our bodies. And he says, every single moment of experience is 
just as important as every other. It isn't just that your breath is more important or that a nice breath is more important. He's saying that each moment we can bring that capacity to be present, to to not forget but to remember and to touch deeply the experience of stretching to get our t-shirt um, from the shelf or to open the door, that touch of the handle and the opening of the door. Any time, any time, any experience is good enough to be mindful. One experience isn't better than the other. In fact, a really lovely story for this is the story of Ananda, the Buddha's um, great friend and um, um, butler and manager. <laughs> Ananda was um, really the Buddha's right-hand guy. And um, um, Ananda actually had a terrific memory because it was Ananda who actually was able to recite all, because he was with the Buddha all the time, he was able to recite all the Buddha's, all the Buddha's discourses. But anyway, the Buddha died and all his um, um, disciples decided to come together so that they could share what they had learned and what they remembered of the teachings together and so that they had unity in that before they went out to continue to share the teachings. But there was a requirement and the requirement was they had to all be stream enterers. They had to all have the oh, arahants. They had to be finely purified of all unwholesome qualities of mind. And Ananda wasn't an arahant. And it was like, okay, Ananda was saying to himself, I really better practice because I really want to go to that meeting. And everyone else wanted him too because he had such a great memory. And they were like, come on, Ananda, you know, practice mindfulness hard. Really practice. <laughs> you know, and, and so, you know, I had, when I first heard the story, I had, you know, this vision of Ananda you know, sitting down, kind of like the Buddha saying, okay, I'm not going to get up until I've reached Arahantship. But actually, it was in taking a step, I think it was from, uh, taking a step from his bed, to getting out of bed and taking a step, just that step, and being present in that step that he came to a full opening. Just in that step, so ordinary, and yet so profound. And that's the beauty of mindfulness, is that it doesn't ask for special or magical experiences. It just says right here with our bodies in one step, just being fully present for that step, that step can become, become the conditions for our opening and can become the conditions for our deepest inspiration. So, working with our breath, feeling the in-breath and the out-breath. Let me, um, let me, um, <laughs> the Buddha, he says, um, this is what he says, it's just like, you know, it's so ordinary, I love it. Okay, so he says, so monks, how does a monk abide contemplating the body as a body, you know, being mindful of our bodies? Here, 
a monk or person, I'll say a person from now on, having gone into the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty place, sits down cross-legged, holding her or his body erect, having established mindfulness before her or him. Mindfully, she or he breathes in. Mindfully, she or he breathes out. Breathing in a long breath, she knows that she breathes in a long breath. Breathing out a long breath, he knows that he's breathing out a long breath. Breathing in a short breath, she knows she's breathing in a short breath. And breathing out a short breath, he knows that he's breathing out a short breath. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's here we are when we breathe in knowing if there's a short breath or a long breath knowing if there's a tight he doesn't say short breaths are better than long breaths did you notice that because I mean I always think that right oh look a long nice smooth breath is much better than a short tight breath but that isn't what he's saying he says if it's short and tight know it's short and tight if it's long, know that it's long. If it's smooth, know that it's smooth. If it's rough, know that it's rough. Finita. No judgment, no interpretation, no covering. Just knowing the breath as long or short. So that's so wonderful. So contemplating that. And then he said, sometimes, we get very, you didn't say this, I'm saying this. this <laughs> don't want to misquote the body. Sometimes we get very attached to our bodies. We get very attached to the bodies of others. You know, um, um, how our bodies look, how other people's bodies look, what's considered attractive, what isn't considered attractive. I mean, it's profound, isn't it? I picked up, um, my uh, partner gets some, um, this magazine called Natural Health. And on, I, and I just, he, she, she has a pile of them by her bed. She had about 13 of them, one a month, so we're talking about a year. On every single cover of Natural Health, there was a woman in her 20s looking gorgeous. And I'm like, what has natural health got to do only with a young woman looking gorgeous who actually also happened to be white? I was like, what is this? You know, and this is natural health. And I, I was just struck again about the incredible conditioning that we all face around bodies. And here we have this wonderful contemplation that the Buddha invites us to. He says, here is a wonderful way to challenge our clinging and obsession with bodies. He says, contemplate the hair on your head and the hair on your body, your nails, your teeth, your skin, your flesh, your sinews, your bones, marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, intestines, spleen, lungs, bowel, stomach, undigested food, feces, brain, bile, phlegm, pus, 
blood, sweat, fat, tears, lymph, saliva, nasal mucus, oil of the joints, and urine. If you find you are obsessing about your own body or someone else's, here is a wonderful contemplation that is included in the first foundation of mindfulness, whose express purpose is to say, look, this is our obsession with our bodies is not where it's at, let go. There is a lot of freedom in letting go. And just to do a whole nother cycle, because this contemplation not only reminds us of the reality of what's really inside of our bodies, but also gives us the kind of pathway into connect so that we feel enlivened and beautiful in our bodies. And that sense of feeling beautiful in our bodies, of feeling the sense of awe of living in a body, does not come from a picture of how our body looks. It comes from the, the constant contact of mindfulness to our experience in our bodies. Or any of the other foundations actually will bring it. But, but for me, it's been really primarily with our bodies. And so when, when we, um, we talked about this a little bit in the movement session yesterday, just, just touching, stretching, pulling, vibration, tingling, or that sense of, of the breath, vibration, over and over again, that connection is the connection that brings us into the profound sense of honoring and loving our bodies. That's where it's at. This is also where it's at, which is acknowledging the reality of our bodies. I, um, I, for a little while, I thought I wanted to be um, a doctor, and so I found myself um, uh, cutting open a dead body as a part of a that early early training and um, that was also that was also a wonderful experience to see the reality of what our bodies actually really are about because you just got to see all that all that stuff without any of our projections on top of it Recently, I was walking at um, a local park where I live, and um, I, tend, I always tend to look up to the horizon. And uh, my partner, who tends to look down on the ground, um, stopped us, and she found this tiny, tiny little bird. It was um, maybe about that big, and um, it didn't have any feathers on it and it was lying there right on the pavement. And um, we picked it up and we started to look for a nest for um, to, to put it back, and um, we couldn't find any nest. There were actually no big trees around, and um, there were some bushes, but we couldn't find it. And so here we found ourselves with this tiny, tiny little being. And we went up to the park rangers, and, and um, they they like, you know, everyone is um, laying off everyone, and <laughs> there were these young kids now who, who are temp so now they hire temporary people, you know, a lot, so there were these young kids, and they were like, 
oh, you know, there's nothing you can do, just put it down. And we were like, oh my God, it's this little life. And I could, it was opening its mouth because it wanted to be fed and you could just feel the tiny beating of its heart. And I felt so touched again by life, you know, and just how sacred and beautiful it is and how, as Eric was saying, we don't know when we're going to die. And here was this little bird right hovering on the threshold of living or dying. And um, and it became so. Anyway, we took this little we took this little bird home, and we went on the internet, and it said, "Feed it droppers of salt sugar solution," which, by the way, is the very worst thing to do, and put it on an electric blanket, which is also the worst thing to do. But um, we were giving it lots of matter, so we were we we um, we uh, actually had a straw, and we were dropping. This, this solution in and we put it on this little electric blanket and I was sending it meta and um, we went to sleep and then by the morning it really was very close to death because we didn't realize what we'd done was so awful to it and um, and and I and I felt it again that place of just how life in that in a moment can go into not life and um, and it, it really inspired me to practice again. And it really inspired me again to contemplate what the Buddha invites us to contemplate in this first foundation of mindfulness. And he invites us to contemplate our death. He says, challenge your clinging. Challenge your holding on. Because you are going to die. There is absolutely no question about it. There is no question that every single one of us in this room is going to be dead. And so the question becomes, how do we want to live our lives? And that question actually, that question rests, really rests on contemplating our death and living with death as our shadow, living with that understanding that at any moment I or you might die or be killed. And so we are asked, not just even to think about it like that, but to think about it in even more detail. And he invites us to the contemplation of what happens when we die. So let's just all take a moment, because we know this is going to happen to us. There's no question about it. It's just the question when. The body swells up, our bodies turn shades of red in places where flesh is prominent, turns white in places where pus has collected, turns blue-black everywhere else. Pus flows from the broken parts of the skin and from other openings in the body. The skin flesh and organs are devoured by animals, flies and maggots. The body is reduced to a skeleton held together by tendons with flesh and blood adhering to them. 
The skeleton is blood-smeared and held together by, by tendons but without flesh. The bones are scattered in all directions after tendons wither. The bones begin to disintegrate. The bones turn to dust and blow away. Remember the sky that you were born under. Know each of the star's stories. Remember the moon. Know who she is. I met her in a bar once in Iowa City. Remember the sun's birth at dawn that is the strongest point of time. Remember sundown and the giving away tonight. Remember your birth how your mother struggled to give you form and breath. You are evidence of her life and her mother's and hers. Remember your father, his hands cradling your mother's flesh and maybe her heart and maybe not. He is your life also. Remember the earth whose skin you are, red earth, yellow earth, white earth, brown earth, black earth, we are earth. Remember the plants, trees, animal life who all have their tribes, their families, their histories too. Talk to them, listen to them, they are alive poems. Remember the wind, remember her voice, she knows the origin of the universe. I heard her singing Kiowa war dance songs at the corner of Fourth and Central once. Remember that you are all people and all people are you. Remember that you are this universe and that this universe is you. Remember that all is in motion, is growing, is you. Remember that language comes from this. Remember the dance that language is, that love. So we have this opportunity to go and listen to the wind tell us its song of the universe and to remember to listen and to 
whether our step is long or short, hard or soft. We come back in half an hour. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.